This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Hi, everybody. Hope you're doing well this Monday. What I was saying when I got kicked off, and maybe this is why I got kicked off, is that I wanted to take a break from talking about Donald Trump for 20 minutes to talk about uh, local ballot measures that are on the California ballot because they have national implications. Um, and I wanted to talk about two in particular, Proposition 15 and Proposition 22. Uh, both have uh, huge amounts of money that's being put into them, and both are. Um, both involve some amount of what's called astroturfing. So I I shared this image because John Oliver, who uh, has a show on HBO called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, did a whole 20 or 30 minute segment on astroturfing. So if you don't know what astroturfing is, I recommend that you watch this. But astroturfing has become a uh, very regular term of art, very regular thing, regular phenomenon that happens in our society. It's the opposite of grassroots organizing. Astroturfing is when a corporation or powerful elite force basically uh, essentially creates uh, a pseudo grassroots organization, a fake grassroots organization to pretend as if they are progressive, they are of the people, um, this we saw this very much in the support of the Tea Party. In my own work, um, I mentioned to you, I think I mentioned to you, but maybe I didn't, that um, there was an AstroTurf group created to fight us by the National Restaurant Association called Save Our Tips, which was a, a fake worker organization created by the National Restaurant Association of workers supposedly saying, we don't want our wages to go up because we think our tips will go down if our wages go up. So it was a fake campaign of the National Restaurant Association. It was an astroturfing uh, group that John Oliver featured on this segment on astroturfing. Um, But I bring this up as an example because, um, unfortunately, uh, he is... um, he is alluding to something that is very real. Can you still see my PowerPoint? Are you seeing something else? Okay, cool. Uh, That is very real with regard to Prop 15. Um, So Prop 15 is is also called Schools and Communities First. It is a ballot measure on the California ballot that would uh, essentially reinstate taxes on corporations, especially to fund Uh, public education. And to understand why Prop 15 is happening, it's important to first understand a little bit of the history of Prop 13. Prop 13 was a measure that uh, was on the California ballot in 1978, and it was called the People's Initiative to Limit Property Taxation. It reduced Uh, real estate taxes in the state of California, both for individuals and for corporations to just 1% of the full cash value of the property. And it seriously reduced funding for public education. Prior to Prop 13, the state guaranteed a base level of funding for each pupil and districts use their own local taxes to increase funding 
to the desired level. So for example, in many cases, states would put in 60% of the funding into a school district and the local district would put in an additional 30%. And it was very unfair for a very long time because obviously richer communities would be able to put more money from their tax base into their school districts, providing a very unequal experience of education in the state of California between richer communities and poor communities. A California su Supreme Court decision called Serrano versus Priest said this was a violation of equal protection and sought to equalize funding among school districts regardless of their property tax base. And some people say, many people say that Prop 13 was in part a reaction to that attempt to equalize public school funding for people across the state. But it was also part of what people called a taxpayer's revolt. It was part of the Reagan era taxpayer revolt of Californians. So prior to Prop 13, 1978, you could see the blue line is California per pupil spending exceeded the national average. We were definitely the best, we were considered one of the best public school systems of any state in the country. We spent way more than the average state did, than the, than the country did on education. But Prop 13 decimated per, per pupil spending. It decimated class sizes. In other words, class sizes became much larger as a result of the reduction in per, per pupil spending. And you can say, see that up until this day, we have never actually caught up. We, we continue to be, as California, uh, frankly, at the bottom half of per pupil spending in terms of education. So we went from being one of the best education systems as a state to being on the bottom half in terms of per pupil spending and class sizes because of Prop 13, because Prop 13 decimated uh, property taxes that were going to schools. So in that kind of vacuum of very poor funded schools, poorly funded schools, emerged the notion of charter schools. So charter schools are privately created, privately funded, or partially privately funded, but definitely privately created schools that access public funds, but are wholly unaccountable to the public system. They don't have to meet the same measures or requirements that public schools have to measure. And one of the biggest challenges with charter schools is that they don't actually have to take all children in the same way that a public school has to bring together all children in a community. They cannot turn anybody away. Charter schools are legally allowed to take, to turn children away, even though they accept public funding and in fact rely mostly on public funding. Um, and as a result of this, they have largely turned away students with disabilities or students who are named to have disabilities, students who are high risk. And as a result, um, you have all these billionaires who have stepped into the fray and are, can you now see billionaires? <laughs> the Waltons and Bill Gates have been some of the biggest funders of California charters. The first California charter launched in 1993, um, just a decade and a half after uh, Prop 13 went into effect. And they stepped in because they saw the opportunity to essentially take over public schools. So this is the growth of charter schools from 2001 to the present day. And you'll see the number of students in district schools in Oakland has gone way down as the number of charter school children has gone way up. Oakland and L.A. have been targeted for public school uh, 
decimation essentially as charter schools have taken over and these billionaires are in large part responsible for this. So let's go back to seeing the billionaires. Um, so besides the Waltons and the Gates, do you now see Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos? <laughs> Betsy DeVos has been a major funder, supporter, driver of charter schools and reducing regulations and accountability of charter schools. And Donald Trump has, I am sure even in the RNC convention, he publicly talked about school choice. And sadly, Ice Cube, the rapper, is now working with him on a national contract for Black America. And a major part of that is driving school choice and charter schools. Um, another, two other major supporters of charter schools in California are Michael Bloomberg and a developer from Los Angeles named Eli Brode, both of whom have poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into the Oakland school board election. You think Oakland, such a small community, four or 500,000 people, why would Michael Bloomberg and a major developer from LA care about it? It's because these developers have targeted communities of color, like Oakland, parts of Los Angeles, and are driving a narrative that because after the decimation of public schools in California, public schools are failing black and brown children and charter schools are essential to come in and take their place. Charter schools are essential to save black and brown children from the horrors of public schools. And they've really driven this very strong narrative that has resulted in severe further segregation. Even the Brookings Institution has reported that charter schools are prolonging segregation, even though unfortunately many people of color and groups of color, including the NAACP, have now come out in favor of charter schools because of this notion, this kind of false notion um, that charter schools are better for black and brown children than public schools. Public schools have failed black and brown children in communities like Oakland. And as a result of this, in some communities like New Orleans, they actually managed after Hurricane Katrina to entirely, entirely uh, decimate all public schools. So let me see if this worked. New Orleans after Katrina became the first major American city to get rid of all public schools, have only charters, which means if you live in New Orleans and your child is a child with disabilities or an high-risk child or uh, is deemed by the charter schools as unworthy or ineligible, you have to leave New Orleans or educate your child at home. You have no choice. Um, and this is important. It's important because in Oakland, over the last several decades, uh, these billionaires have funded the takeover of the Oakland School Board. And so now the majority of the Oakland School Board has voted in favor of closing public schools and replacing them with charters. My children's public school in Oakland was the 16th majority black and brown public school to be shut down, to be replaced with a charter school. And our children, we started actions every week in the school board meetings. Our children took over. This is them on the dais, on the school board dais, taking over the school board. And as a in, in reaction to this, um, the AstroTurf organizations funded by the school board, together with the school board members, essentially had the police brutally beat us up. There's a first grade teacher being beat to the ground, a parent being beat, and I myself was beat to the ground. Uh, my knee was broken. They tore my ligaments in my knee. I had to have major surgery. This all happened exactly a year ago, October 23rd. I was taken to the hospital in police custody. 
Um, and of course, we have a major lawsuit against the district. But all of this is at the zealous driver, at the, ze the zealous driving of these AstroTurf organizations that exist in Oakland that have very benign names. Go Public Schools, you would think is a nonprofit that supports public schools. It is a charter support organization that has funded Oakland school board candidates that support the closing of public schools and the replacement by charter schools it, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is funded by the Waltons and the Gates and Michael Bloomberg, um, and it is driving the charter school takeover in Oakland. And so I am so going so quickly and glossing over so much, but the point is that even if Prop 15 um, passes, which it must pass to restore at least, if not residential ta tax property taxes, corporate property taxes, to at least save some of our public schools. The problem is that these charter school uh, AstroTurf organizations are also counting on it passing because they plan on accessing the funding that's gonna come through Prop 15 to open more charter schools. And so what's important to note is that the fight is not just about Prop 15, it's about ensuring that local school boards are not taken over by charter school candidates that will access the funds that come through Prop 15 and use them to close more public schools and replace them with charter schools. So really important information to know about Prop 15 and I can share more, but I'm going really fast. Now let's talk about Prop 22. <laughs> Prop 22 is uh, the attempt by large tech companies to, to continue to call their, to, to continue to treat their delivery workers and uh, drivers, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, as independent contractors. And you may know that more money has been spent on Prop 22 than any other proposition or ballot measure in the history of the United States of America. Um, it is now to the tune, it's getting close to, it's definitely over $500 million at this point, which is more than any proposition, certainly in the state of, in the state of California. Um, but the thing about Prop 22 and this notion of independent contractors, although these tech companies like to claim that this is a new model of working that they uh, have had for very long, that they've disrupted, you know, the economy by creating this new and flexible mode of working so that these drivers can have flexibility in their work. The truth is the notion of working as an independent contractor is very, very old, and it stems from the same racist exclusions from the New Deal that you heard me talk about with the subminimum wage for tipped workers. In the, new de in the New Deal, at the same time that tipped workers were excluded from the minimum wage and from other protections, farm workers and domestic workers who were mostly black at the time were excluded also from the right to organize, the right to overtime, the right to a minimum wage. And it is that moment in which Southern Democrats demanded the creation of the notion of an independent contractor as opposed to an employee. And that idea of an independent contractor started with a racist history and continues to this day with Uber and Lyft, who have attempted to hire hundreds of thousands of workers and not pay them as employees, but rather have them not, you know, basically on um, independent contractor status so that they're not liable for them in terms of wages or benefits so that they don't have to pay unemployment insurance benefits for them, which has created a disaster during the pandemic. And so prop before Prop 22 happened, the major 
thing that happened that caused that culminated in Prop 22 was that the legislature of the state of California passed a bill called AB5, Assembly Bill 5, that essentially said uh, these companies must treat their workers like employees, at least in the sense of paying them a minimum wage, paying for basic benefits like unemployment insurance, and allowing them to organize or unionize. And in response, Uber and Lyft created Prop 22 and have... uh, and have actually driven, oh my goodness, I don't know why I'm having so much trouble today. Can you still see the person with the real independent contractors don't let, make less than the minimum wage? Yes, okay, um, almost done. Uh, they, have, they have created these ads, which I'm sure you've seen, that have drivers saying, I love the flexibility, I need the flexibility, don't take the flexibility away from me of being an independent contractor. When in fact, thousands of drivers have been organizing for real wages, real benefits for a very long time. And the AstroTurf component of this is that they actually, with their hundreds of millions of dollars, have been creating fake PACs. Uh, PAC, a PAC is a political action committee and fake progressive mailers that they've been sending out um, that pretend as if they are it is a progressive measure. And so they sent this out to voters in LA called Progressive Voter Guide, saying, you know, having all the right votes on other progressive issues and claiming that yes on 22 was a progressive stance. When in fact, not only all the progressive organizations in California, even the Democratic Party in California has pushed for a no on 22 because of the impact on, um, on independent, that it would have on hundreds of thousands of independent contractor drivers. One of the worst examples of this is that they created a pack called Feel the Burn, alluding to the idea that somehow Bernie Sanders and Bernie supporters were supporting Uber and Lyft and Prop 22, when in fact it was a pack that was created and funded by Uber and Lyft to fool voters into believing that Bernie Sanders supported Prop 22, when in fact the opposite couldn't be more true. So uh, it's it's a confusing time because you've got very heavily moneyed interests posing in California as progressives, uh, charter school advocates. You have these Prop 22 advocates posing as progressives when they are astroturf organizations funded by billionaires or large corporations. And so it's important to look to progressive organizations if that's what you truly care about. Uh, you know, to see what is real and what isn't. And so because we don't have a lot of time to go through all the propositions, um, one great source is um, Oakland Rising and Oakland Rising Action that have a a voter guide that tells you a lot about a lot of these uh, propositions and candidates um, without being fooled. So I will stop there. I could say a lot more. Maybe we'll have more time on Wednesday to discuss this after Matt speaks. Right. Great. Um, Yeah, there's a tremendous amount there. I did my ballot last night. Uh, it takes about, you know, it took two hours plus to sort of just get through like who, who, to, who and what to vote for. It's this, I mean, voting in California is a small research project given all of these ballot measures that we are expected to, let alone trying to figure out who the 
the judge is and the regional parks director and the BART board and measure FF and measure HH. And it's this really long, elaborate process, um, which is to say, if you are in California, I highly encourage you to open up your ballot, look at it um, and vote, you know, fill it out and bring it to one of the, the actual legal uh, non-fraudulent designated voter bo- uh, deposit boxes or just put it in the mail. Uh, and get your ballots in uh, early, um, because the the question of you know whether or not your votes will be counted, how they're going to be counted, when they will be counted, all of that stuff is absolutely um, on the, uh, up for grabs this election season. I think that we have been warned in multiple places that election day is going to be um, absolute chaos through much of the country. Um, probably less so in California as opposed to a place like Pennsylvania. But I should, the the solution to that problem is to vote early, to just get your ballot in right away. Now, that is not to say that you shouldn't take the time to figure these things out. And I really appreciate Saro's breakdown of those two particular ballot measures. I think they're really helpful to understand what's at stake here. Particularly, I think just to tie in the question on Prop 15, something that we learned about earlier, which is that of, of the basics of neoliberalism, right? That what you have in the charter school movement is an attempt on the one hand to break the teachers' unions, who they tend to blame for all of the problems of public higher education when it is absolutely not the teachers union's fault. Um, It is the state disinvestment from public education that is the cause of these problems. Um, But yet if you can blame the teachers unions, you can bust the teachers unions. So um, charter schools are basically a union busting strategy. And secondly, it is simply about the privatization of public goods that you can privatize the public school system, which is the kind of dream, the fantasy of neoliberalism. And in particular, someone like Betsy DeVos, who is very deeply invested in fraudulent for-profit higher education, Uh, you know, sort of Trump university type things in which, you know, just absolutely fraudulent online, uh, you know, for-profit colleges, um, which is part of why you see such a concerted right-wing assault, not just on public schools, but on higher education in general, that they really believe that not only do we offer dissenting views on political issues and a a wider uh, spectrum of positions and opinions and expertise, uh, but that um, big business wants to get into the business of what Cal does and make a profit doing it, even though no one's really ever been able to provide both a good education and make a lot of money um, through the model of higher education. So, that, you know, this is neoliberalism at work. Um, now, let, I want to turn to the question of voting um, and voter suppression in particular, which is really the, the, the topic I want to take up for the, you know, about the next 45 minutes or so. And let me begin, unfortunately, uh, with this guy. Now, if you want to really drive them crazy, you say 12 more years. Because we caught them doing some really bad things in 2016. Let's see what happens. We caught them doing some really bad things. We have to be very careful because they're trying it again with this whole 80 million mail-in ballots that they're working on. uh, Sending them out to people that didn't ask for them. They didn't ask. They just get them. And it's not fair and it's not right. And it's not going to be possible to tabulate, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. We have to be very, very careful. And you have to watch. Every one of you, you have to watch. 
because bad things happened last time with the spying on our campaign and that goes to Biden and that goes to Obama. And we have to be very, very careful to be very, very careful. And this time they're trying to do it with the whole post office scam. They'll blame it on the post office. You could see them setting it up. Be very careful and watch it very carefully because we have to win. This is the most important election in the history of our country. I just want to thank the people of North Carolina because to be honest with you, I felt an obligation to be here. Uh, You have a, a governor who's in a total shutdown mood. I guarantee on November 4th, it'll all open up. It'll be fine, like most other states. On November 4th, you know, these Democrat governors, they love shutdown until after the election's over because they want to make our numbers look as bad as possible for the economy. But our numbers are looking so good. They spied on my campaign. You know what they found? Nothing. But this is big stuff. This is stealing millions of votes. And it's going to be very hard. Now, we're in courts all over the country. And hopefully we have judges that are going to give it a fair call, because if they give it a fair call, we're going to win this election. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. We're going to win this election. Okay, sorry for that. But, you know, got to take your medicine every once in a while. Um, Let's just be clear about something here. Absolutely everything that came out of the president's mouth in that clip, with the exception of him saying, this is my opinion, was a lie, a calculated, deliberate lie that they're trying it again. Right. So you may have, I don't know, you know, the, the, the Justice Department's report on the Obama administration espionage on the Trump campaign uh, was just released and you didn't hear about it because they didn't find anything. Um, that they're handing out 80 million ballots, that it's not fair, it's not possible to calculate them, that you have to watch people very carefully because bad things happened last time. Recall that Donald Trump won the last presidential election, but yet he's such a sore winner that he is convinced that bad things happened. And because bad things happened, he should get an unconstitutional third term. 12 more years, et cetera, et cetera. That the problem is that the Democrats are manipulating the post office, which is something that Professor Jai Raman talked about a few weeks ago, which is obviously not the case. And then this language about, right, we have to win, that the shutdowns are just a conspiracy against his campaign. The COVID shutdowns are a conspiracy against his campaign, that they are stealing millions of votes. But But because we have all of these judges and we can get a fair call, that the judges will help us win this election. He says that quite explicitly, right? And that most importantly, perhaps most dangerously, is his reference that this election is rigged and the only way in which we lose is if um, the election is rigged. So he has set up a situation, right, in which he can't lose. If he loses, it was because the Democrats cheated. If he wins, he's heroic and he's somehow overcome this enormous obstacle. This is... And now I'm not a psychoanalyst and you're not going to hear me do a lot of psychologizing, but this is what we just simply would think of as a classic example of projection in which a narcissistic personality projects onto their enemies or their opposition, their own forbidden desires. And so Trump basically is accusing the Democrats of doing all the things that he is actually doing. And that, I think, is what's most important, because in this clip, he explains explicitly, point by point by point, 
all of the various ways in which he and the Republican machinery plan on stealing this election, invalidating mail ballots, ending counts, um, having poll watchers to intimidate voters, having his judges intervene in counts, uh, and his refusal to accept defeat and his refusal to concede uh, once and if he actually loses. And so you can see uh, tweets like these in which the president is offering deliberate misinformation about the safety of mail-in ballots, um, the safety of um, you know poll watching and things like this to the point where uh, increasingly Twitter is, li- is um, labeling the president's tweets as uh, dangerous misinformation. Now, to this, of course, um, we can see, you know, Don Jr. clearly has a thing for low angle, up the nose type selfies. Um, But here he is um, in a tweet in which he explains that the the, the GOP plans to spend more than $20 million to recruit 50,000 citizens to serve as poll watchers. Now, the head of the GOP in Philadelphia warned, or I should say, he promised that election day was, quote, going to be chaos. Now, this kind of overt voter discrimination and challenge has been prevented in the United States for the previous 40 years because the GOP has been bound by a legal consent decree from a federal court dating to the 1981 New Jersey gubernatorial race in which efforts by the Republican Party in a campaign led by Trump's friend Roger Stone attempted to intimidate Democratic voters in New Jersey in a way that was so grotesque, so racist, and so obvious that the the the, the federal, you know, the national uh, Republican Party agreed to punitive regulation under a federal consent decree that prevented them from sending poll watchers into polls uh, to intimidate voters for forty years. That consent decree was lifted in 2017, and as a result. The GOP is promising a coordinated effort on election day. And in the words of the GOP manager of this program, quote, he is promising a much bigger program, a much more aggressive program, a better funded program to fight voter fraud. And so this is an attempt to sort of weaponize voter fraud in the interests of voter intimidation and voter suppression. Now, this is, of course, you will recall the electoral uh, map from 2016 in which Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton um, by very narrow margins. Uh, And it should be said that Trump's weakness, his victory in 2016 was a narrow victory, very narrow. I mean, less than 10,000 votes in Michigan, some 40,000 votes in Pennsylvania, uh, small numbers in Wisconsin could have tilted this election in either way. These were narrow, narrow margins in a low voter turnout year. In 2018, excuse me, in 2020, Trump's weakness in the electoral calendar or electoral map has not turned into strengths. It turns out indeed that Trump's agenda has never been popular. Donald Trump himself has never been popular. He's never come anywhere close, over 45% approval rating, frankly. He's ne- his disapproval rating has only dipped below 50% at once, I think, during in four years. He has never pushed a, pushed a majority position. His top legislative agendas are hugely unpopular, namely his immigration policy and his tax cuts for the vastly wealthy are massively unpopular agenda items. And so he must seek to govern and win re-election from an explicitly minoritarian position in a nation that is demographically trending away from Trump's older white male voting base. 
So everything about Trump's position in this, in 2016 and in his reelection is both eroding and getting smaller and can only be achieved through the assertion of minority political rights. So what, but what you got in 2016 was an electoral shift, a legal electoral shift that made that in fact distinctly possible. The Supreme Court decision of 2013 of Shelby County versus Holder allowed the Supreme Court to strike down key provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that prevented states tied to long histories of voter suppression from changing voting laws without federal pre-clearance. So if the state of Texas wanted to rewrite its uh, election laws, it had to get them pre-cleared from the federal government before they could go into effect, which by and large prevented southern states, in particular Arizona. And if you look at this map here, it's important to recognize that California is on this list, North South Dakota's on this list, um, Arizona's on this list, by and Alaska's on this list, by and large because of discriminatory practices towards Latinos and Native voters in those states, not just to Black voters in the traditional Deep South. But when the Supreme Court um, struck down those key provisions in the Voting Rights Act, um, it led to an immediate response in which Southern states immediately began rewriting their voting laws to restrict voting, particularly for and among African-Americans. The effects, of course, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1964 was immediate, right? Voter, black voter registration in Mississippi uh, between 1964 and 1968 went from less than 10% black voter enrollment in Mississippi in 1964 to more than 60% black voter registration in 1968. In Alabama, those numbers rose from 24% to 57% in the same two election cycle. Millions of new voters were added to the rolls and black voter registration reached an average 64% in the era of the Voting Rights Act. But with Shelby County decision and the undoing of the Voting Rights Act, those numbers have begun to erode and erode deliberately and erode steeply. What is left unsaid, of course, writes Carol Anderson, in her book, One Person, One Vote. And if you haven't noticed, I actually post the bibliography of the lectures I'm giving on my bookcase behind me here. Um, So she writes, quote, what is left unsaid, of course, was that the reasons the Voting Rights Act worked was the advent of vigorous federal intervention, not because the racism that required the law in the first place had stopped. The Voting Rights Act worked because of federal intervention in the Defense of Voting Rights Act, but the the Voting Rights Act was thrown out in a decision by uh, Justice Roberts, who said, quote, the country has changed. We're not racist anymore. We elected a black president. We're not racist anymore. We don't need these kinds of enforcement. That, of course, is proven historically to be tragically wrong. 2016 was the first year in which a presidential election occurred without the protections of the Voting Rights Act. And you can see here the numbers of states that instituted new restrictions on voting in the post-Shelby environment. And they are, of course, broadly across Southern states. Um, mostly, you know, here through the Deep South, in particular Georgia, North Carolina, uh, Texas, Arizona, and elsewhere. The results of this were a marked drop in the um, uh, the, the um, voting amongst uh, African Americans, in particular, in key swing states in 2016, a substantive drop um, 
in um, black voting in places like Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Ohio, all states that polled uh, for Hillary before the election, uh, but who were won by Donald Trump. In Wisconsin in 2016, black voting rates dropped from 78% in 2012 to less than 50% in 2016. You see, in black voter turnout in North Carolina, their new laws led to a collapse of black voter turnout by over 80%. And in the state of Ohio, 200,000 people were illegally purged from uh, purged of minority voters were purged from registration lists in Ohio in anticipation of the 2016 election. So, which is to say that Donald Trump successfully won in 2016, by and large due to voter suppression in key states, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. Now, these are hard numbers to calculate because when votes don't appear on lists, they can't be found, right? They are invisibilized. So it's impossible to count the votes that don't appear. People who are intimidated, who are discouraged, who are turned away at the polls, these kinds of things, these numbers don't appear. It's hard to calculate exactly how many, what percentage you can successfully uh, dissuade, uh, purge, prevent from voting. But if it's only one, two percent, that would have been enough to swing the election in places like North Carolina, Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So this is just, you know, the, the, the latest polling numbers for the 2020 election. And as you can see, this is the, the sort of consensus polling data um, that Joe Biden is well in the lead. Um, and we should take this very much with a grain of salt. Um, as we should have in 2016. These are numbers equivalent to what Hillary looked like um, uh, in 2016. Now, 2020 is not 2016. I will say that Biden's position is much stronger than Hillary's was in 2016. Uh, Not the least of which is that Biden is polling over 50% in large numbers of these battleground states, in particular um, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Minnesota, even in North Carolina and Arizona, according to some polls. He's reaching 50% in places like Florida. He is deeply competitive in Georgia, Ohio, Iowa, and increasingly in Texas. Now, this then is No guarantee of who's going to win, of course, but it should remind us that uh, polling data cannot account for things like voter suppression. It cannot account for things like voter intimidation. It cannot account for votes that are cast and never counted. So this election, while it may look to be strongly on the side of Biden, is very much up for grabs. And it is important to remember that Donald Trump is going to use every tool within his arsenal to effectively manipulate, suppress, and steal this election. He's told us he's going to do it. He's told us exactly how he's going to do it, and we can see him doing it in real time. So just because these numbers look good and 538 gives Donald Trump a 12% chance of winning, that should not really be convincing to any of us. Okay, for reasons I will continue to go into. In fact, in a recent New York Times article, the the Times writes, quote, even as the corona pandemic poses a grave obstacle to his reelection, the crisis is providing him an opportunity to do what no other president has done before him. Use the full force of the federal government to attack the democratic process, suppress the votes of American citizens, and spread grievance and suspicion among his followers. 
Recently, perhaps predictably, the president has begun to suggest that because of his professed distrust in the electoral process, he will not agree to a peaceful transition of power. That is quite shocking. And indeed, there is not much in the way of a mechanism to remove a president who refuses to concede and leave office. We are firmly in uncharted territory here um, in terms of what this means. But it's more than that. It's also the fact that Donald Trump is willing to use his position as president to manipulate the outcome of this election, not just violating the Hatch Act and using the White House as a background for uh, election campaign events, which is strictly uh, forbid legally uh, forbidden, right? He has to have, you know, he, he runs the White House, but his campaign has to be separate. And Trump has collapsed that distinction. He's used the White House on more than one occasion, including during the convention, as a backdrop for uh, his reelection campaign. That is strictly illegal. That is one of many mechanisms. But the willingness he has to throw mud at and to cloud the possibility of a clear result on election day is deeply, deeply troubling. And his insistence that people need to come out and watch what's happening and make sure they don't pull any dirty tricks and the like is absolutely, we know, um, encouraging vigilante violence and will uh, encourage further vigilante violence as we get closer to election day. Indeed, we've seen this across the board, attempts to um, intimidate voters, particularly in minority districts in swing states. Billboards like this one that you see in this image have been appearing on clear channel billboards, particularly in black and Latino neighborhoods. This one is in Cleveland, but as well in places like Cincinnati and Milwaukee and elsewhere. Um, a group has then sent a letter to Clear Channel Outdoor requesting that the company take down these signs as explicit overt attempts at voter suppression and that Clear Channel has said that it would not remove them because a private out-of-state family foundation was entitled to privacy who had paid for these billboards to be put up in Ohio and in Wisconsin, threatening voters, um, you know, voter fraud is a felony, et cetera. Now, let's actually talk about voter fraud for a moment. According to the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School, voter fraud is vanishingly rare. Incidents of confirmed voter fraud reached between 0.0003% and 0.0025% across all ballots counted in the United States. One is more likely to be hit by lightning than find actual incidents of voter fraud at the polls. Um, Hang on. Muting, muting, uh, muting. Okay. Um, Now, this is not to say that people aren't struck and killed by lightning, particularly golfers. Um, but so voting, you know, like people do get hit by lightning. It is a thing, right? But you're never going to actually get enough people who have been hit by lightning in a room to determine the outcome of an election, no matter how narrow that election is, right? Even the slightest, the closest of elections would never be determined by the number of people hit by lightning in that district. A study by the Washington Post found 31 cases of acknowledged voter fraud between 2000 and 2014 out of more than 1 billion total votes cast. 31 cheated votes out of a billion. 
2016 found four documented cases of voter fraud in the entire country. And when a federal court struck down North Carolina's restrictive voter ID laws, the court cited the state's failure to present even a single incident of acknowledged voter fraud that the law was designed to prevent. So when Republicans say that they need restrictive voter ID laws, that they need to uh, limit absentee ballots because they're attempting to restrict um, voter fraud, they are creating, a you know, essentially there's not a problem. They are creating a solution to an unnecessary problem that is designed to disenfranchise voters through the exaggeration of a non-existent problem. Now, of course, there are examples of voter fraud that have happened, particularly in the state of North Carolina uh, in the last uh, election cycle. Uh, in which in 2018, in particular, a ballot fraud in North Carolina in 2018, in which an aide to a Republican congressional candidate requested hundreds of ballots um, on behalf of unwitting voters, then intercepted those ballots, filled them in, and turned them in. In the, in the end, this real fraud was exceptionally easy to detect, was immediately exposed, and the district was compelled to re-vote within a year. So voter fraud, when it has been detected, is when it does happen, is very easy to detect. It is relatively easy to mitigate and, historically speaking, is committed by Republicans, particularly in rural districts. Okay, that's just one example from North Carolina in 2018. Now, we have seen Trump's reliance on the judiciary to restrict voting rights and to um push his agenda, to underwrite and guarantee his agenda. A new study uh, by an organization called Take Back the Courts, I'll put this into the chat, um, has just come out in which they rank uh, judges uh, in the federal court system based upon their pro or anti-democracy leanings. And so what they have is a scorecard that tracks election-related votes by federal judges in 2020 and reports whether the judges voted in favor of litigants seeking freedom to vote, ballot access, or lowered signature requirements. And what you find is that democratically appointed justices, um, you know, um, voted in favor of expanding legal democratic rights 107 out of 63 times, whereas Donald Trump's judges voted against expanding voting rights 68, 86% of the time. And this is exactly what Trump is counting on when he is ramming through the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who may be the single most hostile justice since um, before Plessy versus Ferguson on the federal bench. She may easily be among the most radical justices uh, ever assigned to this court since the the end of slavery. Um, And while Roe v. Wade is the top line item, uh, particularly in terms of the, the current sort of discussions about her Um, confirmation. The real issue is about um, labor rights and voting rights that she will immediately be voting on. Um, She is immensely hostile to the expansion of voting rights by every um, version of, particularly her writings about the Voting Rights Act and the Shelby County decision in particular. Now, it should be said to just take a, a walk Uh, through the past here, if we sort of end at the, the, the kind of crisis of the contemporary moment, that the Republican agenda of voting suppression is simply the carrying out of white supremacy um, in a different era. As Malcolm X was famously said, uh, white supremacy is like Cadillacs. They come out with a new model every year. 
that the need to adapt and rearrange and reorganize the understandings of white supremacy are constantly being updated, renewed, restored, reimagined, reassociated, reorganized. None of it is particularly stable. But it is important to understand that denying Black people, in particular, the right to vote, is a deep-seated American tradition. And it should be said that at the start, the United States was never really understood as a democracy. The majority of the framers of the Constitution hated democracy, had no interest in democracy. Indeed, for many of the founders, like James Madison, democracy was another term for mob rule, for chaos, and for government of the, by the unfit. Indeed, as Astor Taylor reminds us, Aristotle defined democracy as rule by the poor. Uh, this understanding, right, that the founding fathers you know, had read their Aristotle, they knew his definition, and that's why they hated democracy, among other reasons. The United States Constitution, therefore, deliberately provides no right to vote. There is no right to vote guaranteed in the United States Constitution. And this is part of the reason why we have so many difficulties around this issue. Republican government explicitly restricted suffrage and guaranteed no rights to vote. Only the House of Representatives in the United States Constitution required a popular vote by the United States Constitution. Remember, United States senators were appointed by state legislatures, and the president was appointed by the Electoral College in the 1787 uh, Constitution. The only provision for democratically electing anybody was the House of Representatives. States then had their own voting laws, their own voting rules. Pennsylvania in the colonial period produced the most democratic constitution, abolishing all property requirements and enfranchising all taxpaying men. Vermont was the only state that didn't even require you to pay taxes in order to vote. By the 1780s, many laws barring Catholics and Jews, which had predominated in the colonial period, were eventually abolished, though in South Carolina, it remained necessary to, quote, acknowledge the being of a God in order to be able to vote. New Jersey in the colonial period even allowed women to vote for a short period. Uh, in the words of Alexander Kesar, his book here, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, he writes, quote, by making the franchise in national elections dependent on state suffrage laws, the authors of the Constitution compromise their substantive agreements to solve a potentially explosive political problem. Namely, who has the right to vote? How can we deny people the right to vote? Now, in the Jacksonian period, the 1820s, 1830s, the period typified by Andrew Jackson and the birth of the modern Democratic Party, we get the story of an expanding American democracy as the story of, as they called it, the white man's republic, broadening the vote to white soldiers and settlers, to artisans and farmers. These were the manly and self-sufficient white producers in the population who were seen as independent enough and educated enough and committed enough to be able to vote on their uh, to represent themselves and to vote with dignity, decency, uh, and a sufficient invested interest in the nation. These were primarily, the, uh, as I said, the self-sufficient population of the Jacksonian democracy of the new Democratic Party. Immigrants in the growing industrial working class in this era could not vote. The enslaved or free Blacks in this era could not vote, nor could the indigenous on whose land white settlers expanded into were allowed to vote. And of course, women were not allowed to vote. The overwhelming majority of the United States at the peak of democratic expansion in the 1850s uh, was simply not denied the right to vote. 
Now, we talked about this the other day uh, when I went over the, the question of the history of social movements in the United States, that the history of these social movements is about the expansion of voting rights by group, by population. And so these three images of the workers' movement, the women's movement, and the abolitionist movement are all, you know, here. And obviously, I picked picked these images to represent them for a reason, but they're all embodied in the act of voting, right? White men enter into the political system through the act of gaining the suffrage and voting. White women um, gain access and enter into the political system through the act of gaining the right to vote. And Black men enter in as political subjects through gaining the right to vote with the 15th Amendment. These these are the ways in which voting rights establish who is visible and representable within American democracy. And this creates the kind of obverse condition in which non-voters, people who don't vote because they're not allowed to vote or who choose not to vote, are effectively invisibilized by the system. Non-voters simply have no voice in the system. Whether they choose not to vote or are legally barred from voting, they are simply disappeared from the system. They have no representation. They cannot be represented. And that language of representation, I think, is all important here because the vote then is imagined as the primary vehicle of representation in a representational republic, in something that aspires to a democracy. Now, of course, the great expansion of voting rights in the 19th century is the revolution of Reconstruction and the Civil War, in which African Americans are not only freed from slavery, granted citizenship rights, but in 1870 granted the right to vote. And they do vote in huge numbers, increasing the registration of African American voters uh, in the South by enormous numbers. And indeed, the 1868 um, Let me make sure I've got this right. Um, The 1868 presidential election had the highest voter turnout in U.S. history in terms of eligible voters, right? Because so many millions of African-Americans across the South turned out to vote for Ulysses S. Grant in 1868. But as you can see here on, you know, the image on the left is African-Americans voting for the first time. By the 1870s, African-Americans have now been Um, removed, disenfranchised, right? So the rights once gained by Black folks as voters under the 15th Amendment has been stripped from them by violent voter suppression in the period known as redemption. The primary vehicle of this is, of course, and I've talked about this before, was the first Ku Klux Klan of the 1860s and 1870s, which functioned as a terrorist wing of the Democratic Party designed to suppress Republican voter turnout, whether by intimidating voters or quite often simply by murdering people who stood for election on Republican tickets. And that's what this image uh, is above here, is that the KKK, uh, labeled as a Democratic donkey, is hanging um, political representatives of the Republican Party, carpetbaggers from Ohio, uh, scalawags as Southern Republicans. But it is important to remember, right, that the Reconstruction Amendments that rewrite the Constitution after the Civil War, and this is where, you know, you have your aside on Amy Coney Barrett and Antonin Scalia's question of originalism in the Constitution and what that means, the originalism of the Constitution. The original Constitution was a pro-slavery document. And to read originalism is to, in fact, embrace the pro-slavery elements of the U.S. Constitution. But what about the originalism of the 14th Amendment, the originalism of the 15th Amendment? Where do we read those? 
The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments rewrite the Constitution after the catastrophe of the Civil War. And yet the judicial reactionaries like Barrett, Scalia, and others want to read the pre-Civil War Constitution as the dominant authoritative textualist mode and read it in an 18th century vein rather than the abolitionist mid-19th century constitution that sought to expand democracy rather than radically contain and limit it. So I, I think this question of originalism, like I'm perfectly willing to be an originalist reader of the constitution if that constitution was founded in 1870, which I think it should be. <laughs> um, but you can see here the 15th Amendment of 1870, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied, abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Now, you will, of course, notice that this provision does not include um, the rights of women to vote. It would take another 50 years and another constitutional amendment uh, for women to gain the right to vote, in which the United States typically was one of the last major industrial nations to grant women the rights to vote. I think they were 27th in the world or somewhere around there. Um, does anyone know what the first nation in the world to allow women unrestricted suffrage was? Does anyone want to guess and put it into the, the, the chat? Yes, someone. the answer is New Zealand. Uh, the first state in the United States, other than New Jersey, to grant yeah, Bolivia. Let's we, we should be talking about Bolivia actually, but like that's a different story. Um, uh, no, the the answer the right the first American state to grant women the right to vote was Wyoming. Now, what do Wyoming and New Zealand have in common when they granted women the right to vote? They had the greatest gender imbalance of any of these nations. Right, there was very few women living in either New Zealand or in. Um, Wyoming at the time, and it was a, a ploy by these kind of colonial uh, landscapes to try and get women to move to the territory, <laughs> move to the nation by incentivizing them with political rights. Uh, fun, fun, fun facts for you on the about the Nineteenth Amendment. What's important is that the Fifteenth Amendment says you can't discriminate based upon race. So what happens in the Redeemer governments in the late nineteenth century is they begin to experiment and try and develop ways around those anti, those discrimination laws about race. Uh, and so what you get in 1890 in particular is the what is known as the Mississippi Plan. To get around the 15th Amendment and disenfranchise Blacks in Mississippi, the Redeemer State took the conditions of poverty and illiteracy imposed upon Black people and used those conditions to prevent voting. So they inaugurated things like literacy tests, poll taxes, all white uh, primaries, and voter intimidation to disfranchise African Americans. So technically, these are laws that are not based on race. They're based on whether you can read, whether you have enough money to pay your taxes, whether or not you've been grandfathered in and can pay for and can vote in the primaries. The effectiveness of the Mississippi plan was immediate, disfranchising both the majority of black citizens and large numbers of poor whites who could not be trusted to completely support the economic reorganization of the new South. The result were voter turnouts across the South of less than 15% through the majority, the first half of the 20th century. Indeed, and I'm quoting again from Carol Anderson here, uh, who quotes, one Mississippi politician remarked that his state had to disfranchise, quote, the ignorant and vicious white too, so that the electorate was, quote, confined to those and to those alone who are qualified by intelligence and character for the proper and patriotic exercise of this great franchise. Given that the three-fifths clause was obviated by the 13th Amendment, 
and the 14th Amendment, what the Mississippi plan created was not a three-fifths compromise, but a five-fifths compromise in which black people would count towards, in the census, towards the electoral representation in Congress, the Electoral College, and elsewhere, but having eliminated them entirely from the vote, a narrow white ruling class in the South could rule with one party state, a one party democratic state could rule with ruthless effectiveness by silence, by both accepting, right, the representational logic, but silencing people by suppressing their vote. Indeed, the electoral college and the winner take all system basically, right, um, underwrites the need. It supports uh, the possibility and power gained by voter disfranchisement. Um, in Mississippi, uh, after the plan was passed, Mississippi Black voter participation dropped from 147,000 voters to less than 9,000 voters in one election cycle. In 1868, Black voter registration was near 67%, but by 1955, it had fallen to 4.3%. In the 1950s, only eight Black people found their way to vote in one of Mississippi's most populous counties. Eight. When the United States Supreme Court upheld the Mississippi Constitution in 1898, every Southern state immediately replicated its voting uh, provisions, instituting fully the system we now know of as Jim Crow, or what W.B. Du Bois described as an era of second slavery on the majority of African Americans. In Louisiana, what this meant was that 160,000 uh, black voters in 1868 dropped to just 1,342 black voters by 1904. In Georgia, by the start of the 20th century, less than 4% of black men were eligible to vote. And thus we have between 1898 and 1965, the era of Jim Crow, in which the United States' largest minority group was systematically, comprehensively denied the right to vote. Now I ask you, can the United States legitimately consider itself a democracy when its largest minority group is systematically denied the right to vote? I would submit to you in this sense then, the United States is not the first modern democracy, but by and large, the last. We are among the last of the modern democracies with the most fragile and racially stratified voting rights of any major democracy in the world. We pride ourselves on being this new, innovative, you know, cutting edge 18th century enlightenment based democracy, uh, but we are not. We are a voter suppression nation. Indeed, Northern states began to discriminate against immigrants and poor people at the same time. So as the South disenfranchised African-Americans, Northern states began to disenfranchise immigrants, workers, and others. They barred a group that they defined as paupers from voting, meaning that poverty or the need to accept public support or welfare in the North could result in working class voters being barred from voting for life. So if you take the dole, you go on welfare, you surrender your voting rights for life in the late 19th century in the northern states. Xenophobes knew that restricting immigration and naturalization would be, on the, uh, would be best for them, so they restricted immigration quite dramatically, saying that restrictions on immigration and naturalization were what they called safeguards for suffrage. So new laws banned the uh, immigration or naturalization of undesirables, usually defined through terms established by racial science and eugenics. 
including barring and pardon my language here, but barring uh, from voting, from not only entering the nation, but from ever voting groups described as, quote, idiots, morons and lunatics. Um, these are people, you know, that they sort of measured their intelligence by completely pseudoscientific 19th and early 20th century mechanisms. So by the mid 1920s, more than 13 non-Southern states had barred illiterate people from voting. This number is hard to determine just in terms of how many people that are. But take, for example, that the World War I draft, when the United States opened the draft for World War I starting in 1916, or 1917, excuse me, uh, the United States military found that one in four Americans were functionally illiterate. This means that that, that the literacy laws could have barred up to one in four Northern voters uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Similarly, residency requirements, meaning that you had to have lived at your current address for X amount of time, and that's a flexible amount of time, um, would be a provision for voting. And these are explicit measures to bar people like immigrant workers, tramps, and university and college students from being able to vote, that you have to have lived at your address for X number of years before you have the right to vote, that would effectively bar college students from voting in wherever they have left home to go to college, estimating that by these provisions, some 8 to 10% of the adult population was barred from voting. By 1870, in southern states, for the first time, voter registration became a requirement as a way of limiting access to voting. Voter registration is not necessary. If this, if you know, the, the state knows what your address is, the mail, the, your mail gets delivered, right? They know where you live. All you need, really need, is to just know where your polling place is, and you should be able to show up and vote. Voter registration is itself deliberately designed as a system of voter suppression that you have to be registered to vote. You don't. You just have to show up and vote. It's enormously secure. It's quite safe. It's very easy. But starting in 1870 is a way of mitigating the suffrage. Voting um, registration rules were, were installed for the first time. Now, of course, it is 100 years since the creation of women's suffrage, and it is a worthy uh, commemoration of the 19th Amendment. But it's important to remember, in particular, that white women gaining the right to vote in 1920 was gained by and large through playing into anti-Black racism and racial science and anti, uh, in terms of eugenics and Im anti-immigration policies. That white women gained the right to vote by and large because people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony capitulated to anti-Black racism and argued quite explicitly that how is it that we can allow ignorant Black folks to vote and still bar educated white women from doing the same? So. Um, I go back to my third bibliographic citation. This is Angela Davis's uh, Women, Race, and Class, who quotes a women's suffrage act activist, Bella Kearney, uh, from New Orleans, who writes, quote, to avoid this unspeakable culmination, the enfranchisement of women will have to be effected and an educational and property qualification for the ballot will be made to apply. The enfranchisement of women uh, would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy honestly attained for upon unquestionable authority, it is stated that, quote, in every Southern state, but one, there are more educated women than all the illiterate voters, white and black, native and foreign combined. So it should be, of course, then obvious that when the 19th Amendment was passed, black women were barred from voting in 1920. 
Now, the means by which people were barred from voting in the Jim Crow period are many. I'll race through this. The poll tax being one of them. Uh, 11 states instituted poll taxes. Um, These were uh, essentially, you know, financial requirements. You had to pay a poll tax in order to vote. One of the key factors of the poll tax was that they were accumulative. So if you didn't pay your poll tax this year, you had to pay that and next year's to vote next year and next year. And and so for many people who fallen out of voting, uh, when they did show up and try and pay their poll tax, it was astronomical. Um, They also used police and law enforcement to collect poll taxes, um, which was formed as a form of voter intimidation. Uh, In the South, things like the all-white primary were major means of suppressing the vote, given that you had essentially one-party democratic rule, that the Democratic Party was a private institution, and that a private institution could discriminate. The the Democratic Party was allowed to have only an all-white primaries through most of the Jim Crow period, which barred Black people from voting in Democratic primaries, which effectively meant that they had, even if they could vote, there was no one meaningful to vote for. The decision uh, had effectively already been made in the all-white primary. Subsequently, there were literacy tests, and these I highly encourage you uh, to go um, play around with and see if you can pass them. Um, I've just put some of these into the text here, uh, into the chat. This is the Louisiana um, literacy test from 1964 in which a white man would essentially preside over the test. And, and now keep in mind, like you read this, it's got 30 plus questions. This is the next page. I'll go back. So there's 30 questions, 10 minutes. You get one of them wrong, you're out. Now, white people didn't were not subjected to literacy tests because they were grandfathered in. So if your grandfather could vote before the Civil War, that means you could vote. Now, whose grandfather got to vote before the Civil War? You guessed it, white people. So what you have here is a, a basically a way of discriminating against black and brown people without actually having it be about race. So I give you my favorite example here, which is to say, write every other word in this first line and print every third word in the same line and then cut to the next line, but capitalize the fifth word that you write. Right. Does that make even a lick of sense? No, not even close, right? It's deliberately confusing, obscuring, right? And so what you get then is mass voter disfranchisement based upon the technicalities of um, the um, the literacy tests. This was, of course, what the 1950s and 60s second reconstruction of the civil rights movement was about, of increase, not only ending segregation and the discrimination that came with it, but in fact, winning and earning and organizing around the right to vote in the rural South. And out of this, we get the, the, the great, the group SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they're I mean, just sublime slogans. Come, let us build a new world together. And perhaps the most evocative, freedom now, (laughs) right? Freedom now, right? These are the basic, you know, the student voice, um, a whole range of uh, on the ground, organizing in rural areas, in Southern states to try and get black folks to register to vote and exercise their right to vote. Now there's a tremendous amount to say, and I'm kind of rushing through this, but I want to get to a couple of quick points before we turn this over to questions. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which I've already talked about, changed everything, right? It all of a sudden made the United States a meaningful democracy for the first time in the 20th century. But it also, within it, right, um, 
enfranchised African-Americans, large numbers of black people are voting for the first time. Black representatives and Senate congressmen and senators are being elected and sent to Congress uh, across the country, right, in all states and uh, for a whole host of reasons. But other means of voter disfranchisement remained quite powerful, not the least of which was the work of disfranchising people for felony convictions, disfranchising prisoners and the formerly incarcerated. In 2020, there are more than 5.2 million people denied the right to vote because of a prior felony conviction. Now, this 5.2 million is down from more than 6 million people who were denied the right to vote in 2016. There are currently nine states that ban at least 10% of their black population from voting using these rules. These are Alabama, Arizona, Florida, Louisiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Tennessee. And Tennessee has the highest rate in which 22% or nearly one in five black Tennessee voters are disenfranchised because of felony convictions. The staggering inequality of the criminal justice system has a knock-on effect in our democracy, preventing large numbers of people of color, particularly black and brown folks, um, from voting. Um, Virginia, for example, um, uh, bars people, uh, all people with felony convictions are permanently disenfranchised. This is Iowa, Kentucky, and Virginia. Now, there is a lot of movement on these laws. They're moving constantly. There's a lot to say about Florida, uh, which ended this and then sort of reinstated it through the back door in terms of a poll tax, all sorts of means. But this is a huge impact. Given that the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the history of the world, this has an enormous and outsized impact on who can and cannot vote. In Florida, um, six, 9% of their voting age population is, was previously permanently prevented from voting because of felony convictions. The second thing to talk about is gerrymandering, which is the ways in which elected representatives write and draw their own districts, otherwise known as politicians picking their own voters rather than voters picking politicians. And you can see here these kinds of things, the ways in which uh, proportional representation can be muddled with by drawing electoral boundaries around certain districts. And so you can see here in this these mechanisms that if you've got a district that's 40% Republican, 60% Democrat, you can do equal representation, which there are two Republican districts and three Democratic districts. You can pack districts and draw them in a different way so that you get essentially five Democratic districts and zero Republican districts. Or you can do what's called cracking, which is where you break them up and you end up with three Republican districts and two Democratic districts in which minorities can rule. Now, this is just the abstract math, but what does it really look like? Let's look at what Scott Walker and the Republicans did to Wisconsin after they took power starting in 2012. So, Wisconsin in the 2018 election um, essentially had right, uh, the Democrats won 52 seats, um, uh, the Republicans won 46, um, because indeed the Democrats won a majority, right, of votes in the state of Wisconsin. But after the Republicans redistricted the state, it created a situation in which the Democrats got 1.4 million votes as opposed to the Republicans 1.2 million votes. And yet the Democrats came out with only 39 seats in the state legislature and the Republicans came out with 60 seats. This is the suppression of democracy itself through the means of gerrymandering. Right. So you get fewer votes, but more representatives. 
right? This is pretty much on par with the pro-slavery aspects of the United States Constitution. South Carolina did the same thing. And when a federal circuit court struck down North Carolina's 2013 voting laws, they wrote, quote, the new provisions target African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Voter registration purges in which people are forced off of uh, voter rolls and then are, f- are restricted in their ability to get back on with new voter ID laws, uh, 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 poll closures, reallocations, and the like is incredibly common. And we see this in a state like Georgia, where voter suppression uh, keeps it very much a red state. Since 2013, Georgia voter rolls have grown by more than 2 million people, yet polling places have been cut by 10%. The nine counties in Atlanta have half the state's votes, but only 38% of the polling places, meaning that packing 40% of the voters into existing polling places. The results are the average white voter in Georgia waits about six minutes to vote, whereas the average black voter has to wait more than 51 minutes to vote. By June 2020, Georgia voters had 331 fewer voting places, polling places, than they had in November 2012, a 13% reduction despite a spike in the number of voters in that state. And what you got is the well-known case of Stacey Abrams. I have family in Atlanta. My in-laws live in Atlanta. And so I I have an authentic Stacey Abrams for governor poster. Stacey Abrams lost by only 55,000 votes in Georgia, but only after Brian Kemp cut 300,000 voters off the voting rolls a mere few weeks before the 2018 gubernatorial election. And so what we're left with is a very basic understanding. Voter suppression is modern day white supremacy. White supremacy does not want you to vote. And I think in the words of Cedric Smith's beautiful uh, photo montage and painting quote, if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't try so hard to suppress it. (laughs) If voting was of no meaning, of no consequence, of no importance, Why would white racists work so hard to steal it from you? Why would the ruling class try and prevent college students from voting? Why would they make it so hard? And I want you to remember that when you see on CNN or on Fox elsewhere, you see images of black folks in particular waiting in line in Houston, in Atlanta, in Charlotte, uh, and in other places waiting in line for hours and hours, 10, 12 hours waiting in line to vote. And then the newscasters fall over themselves to say, oh, look at this, the faith in democracy these people have. Look at the commitment they have uh, to the right to vote. Bullshit. What you're looking at is voter suppression. That is not our deep faith in democracy at work. That is a failed system that is designed to make it damn near impossible for people to vote. What you're seeing is not our faith in democracy, but it's failure. What you're witnessing is not the people's commitment, but a crime. Which is to say then, how do you fight this? Go vote and go vote now. Get your vote out early as quickly as possible. This is statistical summary of voting reports. This is from the election project. Uh, This shows the early vote return. I'm gonna put this in the chat and it shows you, um, if I can get it to work, that there've already 4 million people have voted in Texas, that 2.5 million people have already voted in Florida, that 1.5 million people have already voted in North Carolina, 1.3 million people have already voted in in Virginia, 
and 3 million people, including me, have already voted in California. All right. What questions do you have for us? I'm sorry I went on for so long, but um, there's a lot to do here. Uh, Ratika, go ahead. Um, this question is actually addressed to what Professor Jaya Roman was talking about at the very beginning of lecture today, and that is about charter schools and public schools. And I am just struggling to understand the rationale behind the NAACP's decision to kind of be for these charter schools. And I'm, I'm, I'm just confused. What is the rationale there and why would they endorse that? Professor Cohen, I don't know if you have stuff to say about this, but I can start. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, Zach can tell you a lot more because they've struggled over the years as the L. Baker Center with the NAACP in California. Um, I've struggled with the NAACP in other states, but um, in, in many instances, the NAACP has been funded to take on certain positions. Um, you know, both they and we've experienced this with other uh, folks trying to represent communities of color. For example, Al Sharpton uh, has taken large amounts of funds from Airbnb, from the National Restaurant Association, from other corporations to take on certain viewpoints. And that's the case with the NAACP. I would say many people would argue in California as well. I, I did just want to say, and I was trying to get through it as quickly as possible, but um, it's just so important to understand, as Professor Cohen said, the neoliberal background to all of this. Um, the, the billionaires that have been driving charter schools in cahoots with folks that are promoting this notion, like now Ice Cube and others, that this is a way to address you know, public schools failing black and brown children. That's their entire messaging. But their real agenda is absolutely to... to, to take over public schools, shut down teachers' unions because charter schools are more than 90% non-unionized. But it's even deeper and more sinister than that. My sister um, plays a leadership role in the budget office for the LA Unified School District and works closely with Eli Broad, who's one of the biggest developer funders of charter schools in California. And she says that he's pretty open about the agenda, not only to shut down the teachers' union, but to take over the pension funds of the teachers and the public, you know, the, the, the public, the public pension funds in California, CalPERS and CalSTRS are the largest pension funds in the world. They're multi hundreds of billions of dollars and they have shares and interests in every major corporation in the, on the globe. And so being able to control the public pension funds in California is big business. It's really big business. And so that's really what it comes down to. And unfortunately, they, in a very sinister way, are using race as the way to drive um, kind of their agenda. And I saw some exchange on the chat that we need to pass Prop 15 and deal with these other things later. I would argue that they're really kind of simultaneous. If on your ballot, you're seeing any school board candidates on your ballot, please research them. And while you're voting yet, if you're voting yes on Prop 15, also figure out whether the school board candidates you're, you're supporting are supported by the Charter School Association of California or by any charter AstroTurf organizations. So, and unfortunately, one of those is the NAACP, which is putting this forward as a race. 
race issue when, as, as I showed you, even Brookings has said, charters further segregation rather than reduce it. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I mean, the NAACP is not necessarily the most progressive version of a black organization. They have a pretty mixed past. I mean, they're very old, quite venerable. Um, they have a long and esteemed history, particularly this sort of origins with Du Bois and others. Um, but they they have not, uh, they're not necessarily always the most progressive um, when it comes to issues around racial justice and these, particularly around issues around neoliberalism. So I think that that's a, a solid answer. I think the other thing I would add to that is to say, for, for those of you who find it, um, exceedingly distasteful to have to choose between two aged septuagenarian men, white men to vote for for president. Um, you know, in a very real sense, that the action is down ballot in in all of you. The school board, um, the AC Transit board, um, the rent stabilization board, all of those things. That those are actually, you know, if you can't bring yourself to vote for Trump or Biden, fine. Um, but look down ballot because that's where you know the, where the rubber really does hit the road. Um, uh, John, can I ask you to ask your question? Uh, yeah, just a, a, about Prop 15. So when most leases for small businesses are triple net, that that tax increase is just going to put small business owners out of business. Like it's all going to be passed on to them. So how? Where's the balance there? Like there's no mechanism in that proposition to prevent that, right? I mean, the focus really is on larger corporations and there is a uh, there is an exemption for small businesses. I'm, I'm not entirely clear on, I can't give you the details, but there there is definitely a differential between how large corporations will be taxed through Prop 15 versus smaller, but maybe we could talk more offline about it. Thanks. Um, yeah, all right, uh, Emerson. Um, hi, so in the readings for this week and also in lecture today, um, there was a lot of discussion of the um, 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, and I'm curious a little bit about um, how that still has an impact today and what exactly the act entailed. Um, well, I mean, so the, it's a complicated answer. I mean, the, the Voting Rights Act has um, had to be continually renewed, right? So it, 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 it went into effect in 1965. And one of the key provisions was uh, a federal enforcement mechanism, a ban on the various means of disfranchisement, most of the which that I, I was talking about. And then this question about preclearance in which Jim Crow states um, could not change election laws without them going through the civil rights um, segment of the Justice Department. So, I mean, by and large, the Voting Rights, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65 are, are the, maybe the two landmark um, pieces of federal legislation of the 20th century. They're so exceptionally complicated um, in that they create all kinds of anti-discriminatory mechanisms and, and a huge body of federal um, law and legal precedent grounded in them. I mean, it's important to remember that like the greatest beneficiaries of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 uh, by and large were white women. Um, who had the barriers to their entry to universities, um, you know, through Title IX, right? Um, the, the reason why the United States um, wins the Women's World Cup 
uh, in football every four years uh, is because of Title IX, right? That this, and, and for any of you who are student athletes, particularly women student athletes, have the Civil Rights Act to thank uh, for your access to UC Berkeley. Uh, and this is hugely important, right? That the kind of equal access of women to education, uh, things like affirmative action that sort of find their way in and through the Civil Rights Act, um, really initially, uh, and still to this day, primarily benefit white women over really any other constituency. Now, the Voting Rights Act has all kinds of provisions. And what's particularly important, though, is the Shelby County decision withdrew. Now, again, it has been renewed and expanded. So in the the 1970s, 1980s, the Civil Rights Act uh, was expanded to include Native American voters, to include um, Asian American voters, Latinx voters, and others, so that the provisions would be uh, guaranteed to protect uh, their voting rights as well. But the enforcement mechanism of preclearance that the Shelby County decision eviscerated created a situation in which after the Shelby County decision, 23 states immediately rewrote their voter registration rules, instituting things like voter ID rules, voter purges, poll closures, and the like. So, I mean, in fact, the state of Texas rewrote its voter rules within two hours of the decision being handed down in Shelby County versus, um, uh, uh, versus, uh, sorry, uh, versus Holder. Two hours it took them to purge thousands of voters and institute discriminatory voter ID laws. So in a sense, like there are parts of the Voting Rights Act that are still very much with us. So again, it's still illegal to discriminate based on race, right? The state of North Carolina can't just say, okay, here's a list of all the black voters, purge them. You can't do that. You need some other vi- you know, some other excuse, some other reason. So one of the things they do is people who have moved around a lot, people who... Um, don't have a stable address. People who haven't voted for years. So if you haven't voted for years and years, they purge you from the list because they 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 figure you're dead or whatever. And yes, states need to maintain um, voter registration rules, but there are ways to do that without purging 300, 400, 500,000 voters at a time. So the Voting Rights Act is very much alive. It is constantly being adapted. And I think, you know, it, it should be understood that, you know, that, that John Lewis's dying wish was that uh, a new Voting Rights Act be fully um, passed and restored. Uh, so as, and if not a constitutional right to vote um, be actually enshrined through constitutional amendment. Uh, other questions or thoughts? There's a bunch going on in the chat, but I'm trying to think and talk and I can't read and think and talk at the same time. Uh, what other questions do folks have? Uh, Samantha? Go ahead. Uh, yes. So I had actually put this in the chat, but um, my question was uh, essentially, if I can find it, my apologies. Um, given the way that our nation has, from the very beginning, purposefully established an unfair system, could we understand our foundation as a conservative revolution? I think that from my understanding, especially from high school and, and, and middle school, there was this sort of talk of a, a really radical revolution. And it seems to be precisely the opposite because the rights of man and and the rights installed in, in the Constitution were, were based upon the rights of Englishmen, uh, which is why so many people were excluded. So could could we use this frame of, uh, could we use this sort of framework to understand why we struggle to implement a sort of true democracy? 
there's a lot in that. That's a good question. Um, you're talking about the American, the U.S. Revolution, the 1776 thing, right? Yes. Okay. Um, th- this is obvious, as you might imagine, a very highly contested debate, both amongst historians um, and the public at large. Um, this is a key component in the debates around um, the 1619 Project and others. Um, my view um, comes largely from um, African-American historians of the American Revolution and the sort of critical historians of the American Revolution, particularly Gerald Horn and others. He wrote a book called The, the Counter-Revolution of 1776, um, in which he does indeed argue that the American Revolution of 1776 was a reactionary, a conservative revolution um, that was designed to not only ensure uh, the capacity of Amer- the, 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 the settler colonialism on the, the 13 colonies to expand over the Appalachians, which had been barred them um, by the British, that the British prevented the American colonists from crossing the Appalachians so as not to trigger another um, French and Indian Wars or Seven Years' War between French colonies and settlements on the other side of the Appalachians or to fight with uh, the Iroquois Nation or other indigenous tribes that the English had uh, uh, treaties with, that the Americans, particularly Thomas Jefferson, wanted aggressively to s- expand into uh, and pass the Appalachians. And so the American Revolution was, um, on the one hand, uh, necessary so that the American colonists could resume their war on indigenous peoples. The other was the very clear and explicit intention of the British Empire to ban slavery um, in the late 19th, late, uh, excuse me, in the late 18th century. And so there were major efforts within the British Empire to begin the abolition of slavery. uh, And you begin the process of manumission across the British colonies um, at that time. And it's important that the United States did indeed um, go to war against the British and wage a war of independence uh, that preserved slavery. And that had the United States remained within the British Empire, uh, slavery would have ended in the American colonies some 60 years before uh, it did in, or 70 years before it did in the American Civil War. Keep in mind that the British, as a way of waging the, and again, I'm not an expert in the Revolutionary War era, but the British did um, recruit loyalists to their side uh, by promising to manumit any uh, enslaved person who came to their side. So large numbers of enslaved uh, black folks joined the British army during the American Revolution because the Brits promised them freedom. Uh, the, and these people were later then resettled either in parts of Canada or sent back to or sent uh, back to Africa, you know, in uh, colonies. Uh, in West Africa. So there, this is an, a, a very challenging um, question, but my the simple answer is that yes, the American Revolution of 1776 is a counter-revolution of property in defense of both settler colonialism and slavery. And that is in fact the US Civil War that constitutes the proper American Revolution. I just wanna add that for those of you going to law school, <laughs> In law school, you are very indoctrinated as to the genius of the American Constitution. There's actual several books with the title, The Genius of the American Constitution. And so uh, I, I do think it's important as you're learning these things, and if you go on to law school, to make sure that you are you know, reading those law texts and, and making sure you understand that there, that you know, there is a different perspective as to the true genius of the American Constitution, not even just in terms of racism and white supremacy, but even in terms of 
the very real fallout of this election. If there aren't safeguards in place to keep uh, this from happening, from a from a man from staying in office, how genius is it? Uh, you know, without those real safeguards, you know, I just think it's important for you to keep that in mind for those of you going to law school. Don't go to law school. <laughs> Don't go to law school. That's my advice to you. <laughs> Sorry, but you you are right. I mean, it's not just it's not just in law school. You're absolutely correct about that. I mean, it, in terms of the curriculum that is taught in law schools and things like that, right? That the genius of our founding fathers, the durability, of the document, the hegemony of the Federalist Society over um, law schools and the federal court systems and things like that. Uh, but let's not get it twisted here. This is the American education system too. Um, we are taught in elementary school that the founding fathers are these transcendent geniuses that wrote this document. Um, and, you know, I mean, but look at what we're confronted with here. Oh, we're, we're actually, we're out of time here. But like, look what we're confronted with here, which is to say that we are dependent upon a body of enrobed oracles who get to tell us whether the laws passed by our, our democratically elected legislatures are legitimate, legal, just, and constitutional. I mean, we might as well be like Iran with some religious council that gets to tell us whether our laws are, are in accordance with some particular reading of the Quran. Like the, the, the Supreme Court is not some holy body. They have entirely too much power. And I believe that going forward, the ramming through of Amy Kobe Barrett will lead to the progressive and inevitable delegitimization of the United States Supreme Court and the federal court system. What kind of outcome that has remains to be seen, but I think they, this is a dangerous process um, for them. We're out of time. I, I, I've spent many years as a pre-law advisor telling people not to go to law school. So we can talk more about it on Wednesday after <laughs> uh, our speaker, Pat Nelson. So we'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody.